Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Our guest for this one is somebody I've wanted to have on for a long time, and that's Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated. He is a fantastic writer, and we start out our conversation talking about Team USA. He was in Vegas covering the events and conversations that were happening there about Team USA and some of the some of the pieces that we're finding out about the 2016 puzzle, which were fascinating, honestly, to me. And then we get into a lot of other fun stuff. So that part of the conversation runs a little over half an hour, but we go for almost two. So it was an absolute blast talking with him. I hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, glad to be here, Danny. How's it going? Uh, doing well, thanks. So the reason I want to have you on beyond other things is that you got you were lucky enough to cover the Team USA activities in Vegas last week, and there was a lot that was going on, even though the the play was different because it was an off year. Do you have any like single biggest takeaway from that experience? Well, there was a lot going on. I mean, you had the Kevin Durant like sort of return to who we used to know him as, the happy-go-lucky basketball lover, rather than sort of the moody guy we've seen this past you know twelve months with the with the foot injuries. Uh, you had LeBron kind of swooping in, and that's always a story. But it was kind of weird to me. Like, the, the biggest headline from the whole thing came at the very end of it when Coach K and, and Jerry Colangelo laid out their sort of roster-building timeline, and they basically said they're not even going to have a mini camp next summer. They're just going to pick their 12 players. And this was coming on the heels of basically a, a practice walkthrough for the entire week. I mean, there was no scrimmage play. There was no ability for anyone new to kind of throw themselves into the mix. So once they kind of unveiled this this new plan, it really seemed like you know anyone who was an outsider maybe who was trying to sneak into the equation, uh, anyone who hadn't already put in time, whether it's a World Cup team, you know whether it's a previous Olympic team, it seems like they're kind of getting screwed. I mean they might just be on the outside and not really have a shot. And, and I kind of question the logic there. I mean I totally understand what they're trying to get to with rewarding participation. You know they, they love talking about equity and and keeping people in the program. And, of course, they've got a very strong returning core, you know, from previous teams. But it seems to me like if you want to put the best roster on the court to win a gold medal at the Olympics where, yes, you've dominated, I think, the last couple of international competitions, but, I mean, don't you want to have at least some tryout process? Don't you want to see if some of these younger players, maybe a Kawhi Leonard, maybe a Draymond Green, uh, maybe some of these other names, can sneak into the mix? Because otherwise it seems like, you know, you're kind of limiting your opportunity. Yeah, I mean, they, they, there was a lot of discussion about equity, but to me, equity is a two-way street, and you need to make sure that you're continuing to build the program. And one of the other important dynamics for me, and you, you brought this up, is that 
there is a, an underlying truth that Team USA is probably going to win the gold medal. They can afford to have players on their roster, and we'll get to a couple of those, who are not among the 12 best and still win. But when you start to establish that as a process, it becomes harder to perpetuate itself because how can players build their brand or build their equity within Team USA if they're not getting a chance to make the team? Yeah, and it's really tricky, too, because not only are you selling these guys who aren't in the program currently on sort of being a part of future competitions, I mean, the next future competition after 2016, which these guys don't really have a shot at, isn't until 2019 because they're changing that FIBA World Cup schedule. So now, you know, if a guy is 25 or, or, or 24 now, I mean, potentially he's not going to be in the mix uh, for a USA you know, program until he's 27, 28, if he's still going to be interested in that point of his career. Just the timing-wise there is just a little bit funky. So uh, I think it really all came and, and crystallized with the Kobe Bryant situation because that really came out of left field uh, at the end of it, you know, with the confirmation coming from Colangelo, they had talked and everything. If you put him on the roster, now you're really costing somebody who already has, you know, experience as well because if you're putting him on, now you're taking off somebody like an Iguodala or maybe you're taking off a Cousins, maybe you're taking off a Dwight Howard, or maybe you're denying an opportunity to Blake Griffin. I mean, the roster crunch is pretty real. So you're throwing Kobe Bryant into that mix now, and everybody can kind of agree, you know, he's not anywhere near, you know, being one of the top 12 players uh, for USA basketball at this point of his career. Uh, it gets even worse. And so I think that's really where they start to run the risk of, like, you losing people. You know what I mean? If they're just going to throw Kobe on at the end, so if I'm a 25-year-old star like Kawhi Leonard, I'm kind of like, well, or, you know, he's younger at this point, but, you know, looking forward uh, to his career, I'm kind of like, well, do I even want to be a part of this? I mean, is, it, is this worth my time if I'm just going to be doing things like that? Exactly. And with with Kobe, it get, also gets hard because the guard positions are absolutely stacked, and you can make an argument that Kobe's prop can play, he can play the three internationally. I mean, heck, he could probably even dabble in the four just to be crazy. But there are so many deserving players, and you're get you're not only, you're not knocking off, you know, a relatively equal, you're not using it as a tiebreaker. And the other component of this is Kobe Bryant is an incredibly accomplished NBA player, unquestioned Hall of Famer, but his international resume is good, but not this unbelievable thing. You know, he's not, like, I would say Carmelo has a, a better international resume and is a better international player, and you can make the argument that it's not a choice between those two, but if you're putting both of them on the team, then you're really starting to thin it out, too, in terms of guys in that kind of, those kind of niches. Yeah, totally, and I'm, it's funny because so much of what Coach K has said about how he likes to build a roster kind of goes counter to this Kobe Bryant idea, right? Like Coach K this week was like kind of, or last week was throwing out all these breadcrumbs. So he's saying, first of all, he really likes the, the Tayshaun Prince and Andrea Guadalla mold player to have a spot for one of those guys on his roster. Well, that would probably be Kobe's spot, right? Because uh, I'm sure you're going to bring James Harden uh, and you may not even have room for Clay Thompson if you're throwing Kobe into the mix. So that, that you know, it could be, something where Coach K has to think between this you know, player that he's really hyped up in Iguodala, uh, who has made really big contributions to previous USA basketball teams in sort of a limited role, versus a Kobe Bryant who you know, doesn't really do those kinds of things at this point of his career. Uh, another thing he said was he really likes Cousins. You know, he was willing to kind of forgive some of their you know, bad blood from sort of previous camps. I think people remember maybe three years ago where you know, Colangelo and Cousins kind of had you know, back and forth, whatever it might be. You know, that, that slate has been wiped clean. And so they're saying, you know, Cousins came in and really changed the Serbia game at the last World Cup. 
you know, if they didn't have uh, a big man on the roster capable of doing that, you know, that could have gone a different direction. Now, I think he's kind of selling that up a little bit. But at the same time, you do need to have some protection for Davis at the five. Right? If you're going to be going against, you know, Marc Gasol, Pau Gasol, Serge Ibaka, uh, you know, Cousins would be the obvious candidate. Uh, is there room for him now if you're adding an extra guard like you're talking about? So they're throwing out these little, like, breadcrumbs of, like, here's some of these guys that we like. Uh, but it, it seems like they're going to have to choose at some point because you can't have everybody. Uh, and I would hate that, that they would make a compromise on something that they've publicly stated that they really want uh, in favor of you know, Kobe, which I think his case really boils down to fame, uh, number one, more than anything. And I think, two, you know, the Nike relationships and, and the storyline of you know, leaving his career. I mean, imagine the worst-case scenario here where Kobe's on the roster and they don't win gold. You know, how much finger-pointing is there going to be? I mean, is the minute risk of that happening even worth the potential reward of having him on the roster? I'm not so sure. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're building you're – building a, a, it's, it's a nice story, but the Olympics already have a built-in narrative that you're trying to be the best team in the world. If, a, you know, if the swim team put on somebody who wasn't deserving because they, they were important to it – I think people would get really mad, and basketball is a little bit different because of their likelihood of winning, but to me, that violates my concept, and obviously I'm not that level of athlete or coach it or any at that level, but the concept of the Olympics, you know, it's supposed to be the best of the best, and it's nice, and if you have the flexibility, like, you know, you're not, maybe it's, as I said, if it's a tiebreaker, sure, no problem, but it's not even close to that, and... The other dynamic that I think changed this is it's looking substantially more likely like some of the more experienced Team USA guys are going to go on this ride, meaning Melo, LeBron, and Chris Paul, who everybody, I think, kind of assumed, based on the personal involvement of this, that they would be in if they wanted it, but the question was whether they would, and now it looks like that's a lot closer to a yes. Totally. Uh, you know, just based on body language and engagement and, and all that stuff is very soft and not analytical, and I, I totally get that. But if you're just kind of peeping into their practice to see who you think would be in, I mean, Chris Paul seems all the way in. Melo, I think, if healthy, is going to be in. Uh, LeBron, you know, if healthy and not totally run down, I think he's going to feel a lot of pressure just sort of business-wise, brand-wise, and just kind of, you know, for the good of the game, you know, carrying the sport, I think he's going to feel all those pressures to participate. I think, you know, barring injury, I think he's going to be in. And so you know, they've got a real, you know, little kind of core click that they're going to be building this roster around. And, you know, guys like Anthony, to me, you know, they're a little bit redundant. You know, when you've, if you've got a Kevin Durant who's healthy, if you've got LeBron, if you've got James Harden as your sort of, you know, scoring, you know, lead scoring options, uh, I understand Carmelo's, you know, track record in USA basketball is unbelievable. But I don't know if you totally need him, especially, you know, given his age and coming off the surgery. I guess we have to see how he plays next year for sure. And, and that may determine whether he's in or not. I mean, I remember four years ago, we kind of thought Dwayne Wade was going to be in the mix. And, and a similar thing happened where, you know, he kind of bowed out. But to me, that spot, you know, that Mel is going to be in. I mean, that could be Kawhi Leonard. You know, that could be Draymond Green. When you're talking about balancing the roster skill sets, I mean, being able to have somebody like Kawhi who could, you know, lock down, you know, any international wing with ease, I think. Uh, you know, in a one-on-one situation, or a Draymond Green who can, you know, play five for you behind Anthony Davis. He can be your insurance behind Anthony Davis. I mean, why not replicate that? I mean, if you can put potentially, you know, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Stephen Curry on the court at the same time at the international level, then we know what that trio did in the NBA. You know, it was like plus 15 net rating or something like that when they were on the court. 
say, why isn't that going to be the same thing in the international game? I'm not sure. So to me, those are guys who I'd really be looking at trying to find room for, uh, and maybe it would require a sacrifice from one of these core players that maybe isn't quite willing to, to step aside yet. And the other dynamic with that is that I would expect it'll be the the equivalent of the last ride for all those guys, which puts a little bit of, a little bit of extra pressure on because they can say, oh, you know, we're not going to do it after this. But the younger guys are going to be sitting there going, well, then when is going when are we going to get the chance? <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when you're in the program for 12 years. And there was a lot of talks about that how LeBron and, and Melo had been in the program for so long. And, and I think LeBron probably doesn't get enough credit, and I hate to say that because he gets all the credit of the world all the time, but he might not get enough credit for what he's done for USA basketball in terms of, you know, getting in early, uh, you know, really participating regularly throughout the course of his career. Uh, of course, his good health really helped him, but I don't think the program's anywhere near where it is now in terms of the engagement it has from guys who are 25 and under, uh, you know, if not for him. And so, uh, you know, he's a real magnetic pull for these guys. And so I think he can do whatever he wants, basically, this year and, and probably even into the next one. This will probably be his last one, I would guess. But if he wanted to come back one more time, and I wouldn't hold it against him. But, you know, again, we're kind of coming back to the same question, which is, you know, how do you even cater for guys like Kevin Love? I mean, that's the player we haven't mentioned yet. He has previous experience, but, uh, you know, you're going to have to make choices between a Kevin Love uh, and a Blake Griffin. You know, probably if you're going to get down to 12, you, you know, Coach Kane wants to get Kyrie Irving on this roster. I mean, we know that relationship. You know, how do you fit a Kyrie Irving on this roster after playing uh, in the World Cup team? Uh, you know, if you've got all these incumbent players, even guys who are sort of done everything right, have played by USA's rules, have accumulated some level of equity, uh, are going to potentially have access. Yeah, and what I've been thinking about, let's exclude the the guys who are in unless they say no, you know, the the, the LeBron, the legacy guys. Who would be your non-negotiable, so the guys who have to be on the team? So I would start that list with Curry and Westbrook. Uh, I think both of those guys, you know, Curry is a really interesting situation because, number one, I think a lot of people are willing to say, now he's the best point guard in the NBA. He's past Chris Paul. But I think when you look at the USA basketball context, I would actually expect Chris Paul to start over him as the point guard. But you could actually use Curry as your starting two if you wanted to. So you get this interesting kind of like rock, paper, scissors game going on where pick two between Chris Paul, Curry, and Harden as your starters. I mean, that's a pretty good situation to be in, I think, if you're, uh, if you're Coach K, you know, heading into Rio. But, you know, Curry for sure. I mean, we understand the kind of impact his offense is going to have. I didn't know if he had a great FIBA World Cup, but certainly he's got more that he didn't show, uh, and you need the space in that game, and, and nobody's really better to create it than him. Uh, to me, Westbrook, too, just athletically, even among those 34 guys at the, the camp, which is sort of the cream of the crop, Westbrook just stands out so much you know, physically, athletically at that position in terms of his speed, his power, his aggressiveness. And I also like him as a second-unit guy for, for this team. It's like an embarrassment of riches, but... I mean, if you need somebody to kind of, you know, pump up a boring game where you're kind of like, you know, slogging through with, you know, against some Eastern European team and, and the, the starters really aren't bringing it, I mean, what better change of pace guy than Westbrook? So to me, those are sort of, you know, where I would start that list. You know, Harden would, would be in that category as well because he's bringing the shooting. Uh, and then also just, you know, the defense collapsing, I think is really key too. I mean, when you've got so many other players, you need guys to get in the key and, and just sort of, uh, you know, kick out to, you know, a range of superstars. So those guys would be kind of the start of my list. Uh, I think Anthony Davis, you know, would probably be the most indispensable person on this roster. 
uh, besides LeBron. And I almost consider him as part of that core, even though he's so much younger than those guys that we mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, he almost just feels like you know, he's top of the list in terms of their priorities, uh, you know, right, right behind LeBron. I think that'd probably be my, uh, you know, my, my second tier core of guys who have to be on there. Uh, what about you? I mean, did I forget anybody? Or? The only guy is Durant, but I, that kind of goes without saying. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I consider him part of that core, too. And, and I, I should have mentioned, you know, Durant was like kind of over the top apologetic about what happened last year in terms of the shoe deal and backing out of USA basketball last summer uh, and really kind of laid it on thick in terms of, you know, really wanting to prove to Colangelo and Coach K about his investment. Uh, and so I think you can book his ticket. He's, you know, right there with the, you know, I kind of see the, the initial core being James, Mello, Durant, Davis, Chris Paul. I think that's your five-man, like, no doubt about it, core they're going to be in. A lot of the eligible, on the fringe of deserving players are teammates of high-profile guys on the team, and that's an important <laughs> dynamic, too, because we talked about Kyrie and Kevin Love, those are LeBron's teammates, and Clay and Draymond are Steph Curry's teammates, and so to a point, they're going to do that. But I think there's a possibility that if those matter, that all of those guys lose out because they can't bring any of them, or maybe it's one and one or something like that. But I think that the most likely, if they have, if they get into that at all, is that all of those, all of the Warriors and Cavs, other than the the two main guys, lose out? Yeah, I think you look for tiebreakers, right? And so from the, from those the four that you mentioned, I think the guy who's got the best inside track, even if he's not necessarily the most deserving of those four between Draymond, Clay, Kevin Love, and Kyrie, is actually Kyrie. Because not only does he have the Coach K connection, and he's got a little bit of equity, uh, at least more than Draymond for sure, but he's also got a signature Nike shoe deal. <laughs> you know, And I hate to say that that's a factor in, in the way that they look at these things, but I think it is. I mean, it's a Nike-dominated event. Nike's everywhere uh, at their training camp. Uh, it's the biggest showcase you know, for Nike because they didn't have the apparel deal. They will soon have the apparel deal, and I'm sure they're looking at now, this Olympics has a major way to sort of, you know, really capitalize on basketball even more than usual, looking to go forward into that NBA apparel deal. So to me, they're going to want to have all their signature face guys there. I think that's one of the reasons, too, probably Kobe's in this mix, uh, you know, from their standpoint. I think if you've got a signature Nike deal, that is a big plus uh, when it comes to USA basketball as kind of warped and demented as that sounds. I'm totally willing to be proven wrong on that, by the way. I would love to see them just say, okay, sorry, Kyrie, we don't have room for you. But I, I could easily see that being uh, sort of what pushes him over the top when we're talking about those fringe teammate guys you're mentioning. And DeMarcus Cousins is a Nike guy too, right? Correct. Correct. And, and, and Dwight is not. Dwight is not. Uh, I think his Adidas deal just ended, so I'm not sure what, where he's going. I, I thought he signed with a Chinese uh, company, but I'm not sure. Okay. That sounds, that sounds pretty – that sounds right because Nike would make a big deal if they got him, but – yeah, Dwight is maybe the biggest question mark of all of this, right? Because he has tons of USA basketball experience. He is sort of this traditional center. You know, he's not the, there's not the versatility positionally um, that we've seen. He has had, you know, a long string of injuries. I was, frankly, to be honest with you, I was kind of surprised he even showed up at the camp, you know? I was like, I almost kind of forgot about him from the USA basketball perspective. And he's still not that old, so maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe that was more on me than him. Uh, but with multiple years of injuries, I think there's a pretty fair question, like, does he enter next summer in position where he can really play and, and contribute and, and where they really want him? And I think if I had to bet now just, like, which center is going to be healthier and, like, kind of ready to go and, and be a part of this mix, either him or Cousins, 
I think I'd probably bet on Cousins. The other argument for Dwight, to me, and I think it's an important one, is they don't, this Team USA, without him, doesn't have a true interior defender. And DeMarcus is improving if he gets on the team. Anthony Davis is improving, but he primarily plays power forward. And you don't want to build your team necessarily around what other people have, but Spain is going to be a contender. Spain has great back-to-basket players, and there are other talented ones around internationally. And I think Dwight adds something to this team if he wants to play that there aren't any reasonable facsimiles that are younger or anything. Like If he wants to play, I think he should be on the team. Uh, I think it's a really strong argument. You know, I thought they went a little overboard in the FIBA World Cup because they were clearly concerned about that very factor. And I think they had four bigs, and like they brought Drummond and Plumley. And you know, you look at some of the minutes disbursement after the fact, and they probably could have gotten by with just three of those four. But I think that's a pretty good formula. I mean, if you've got Davis plus two two more centers, I think that's a pretty good roster distribution, knowing that you are going to probably face Spain, assuming they don't choke like they did in the World Cup. So I would actually be okay with a scenario where you're bringing, uh, you know, Davis, Cousins, and Howard, and then maybe you have, you know, Blake Griffin more playing exclusively four rather than trying to shade up to play five. In that scenario, you probably have to leave out Kevin Love. You wouldn't really be able to take Kobe, and minutes would be pretty tight there. I mean, somebody would get left out of the rotation for sure because you've got to play Durant and you've got to play Melo at the four. But I think having protection there in the form of the interior defense, like you're mentioning, uh, you know, with Howard, and then also just Cousins and everything he brings to the table. I mean, I think he puts pressure on Spain, you know, just like you know, you're you're not being reactive when you put him out there against Spain. I think he can really put pressure on their big guys. That, that's a nice mix, but are they going to have enough spots to do that? I think that's a question. One other dynamic that I'm very intrigued by, even though I don't think it's the right starting five, there's a possibility that you have a bench unit that includes the former Oklahoma City trio of Durant, Westbrook, and Harden. Yeah, it'd be crazy. Well, to me, I would start I would start just the most ridiculous front line of all time with LeBron, Katie, and Anthony C. Davis. And yeah, then so would I. I would have a, if I was the coach, I would have such a hard time taking any of those guys out, right? I think it really gets interesting in the backcourt, though, because – I agree. <clears throat> I think Westbrook absolutely is going to be a second-unit guy. And I look at Harden, and I think he could be, too. I mean, so who would you start between Paul, Curry, Westbrook, and Harden? If those are your four top guards. Uh, I think I might go Paul Harden, but the more I think about it, Paul Curry kind of makes some sense, too. You know, it's funny. My my favorite starting that my best five for this Team USA team is actually Curry and Westbrook. I think that's your best oh. five. So you go Curry, Westbrook, LeBron, KD, Anthony Davis, man. Because <laughs> how do you defend That's that? There's, there's no yeah. – and, and when you think about the international three-point line, at that point, all five of those guys should be able to shoot international threes. And why I like Westbrook in that instead of Harden or Paul is that he's less ball dominant. And when you're playing with Curry and LeBron, that's what you want. You know, you want a guy who's basically just – the the bomb whenever a possession is going there and Westbrook's intensity I think actually works better in the first unit but the choice between Westbrook and Paul I mean both of them you, I mean it's such an embarrassment of riches that there are no bad choices the other the, the downside of that is and I don't think you should build the team on this logic is that I don't love Paul and and Harden together because they're both heavy on-ball players, but I love Harden as the offensive anchor of the second unit. Yeah, for sure. And I think 
you know, I thought Harden did an okay job in the last one of shifting responsibilities or shifting between responsibilities in terms of, okay, sometimes you have to be the spot-off guy for this team, and then sometimes you get to be the main guy. Uh, I think, you know, the talent on this potential Rio roster is going to be significantly better than what they brought to Spain for the World Cup. And so that that balance really shifts, uh, like you're talking about. So he's going to be doing less on the ball if he's starting, you know, a lot less. And then, okay, is he bringing the rest of the things that you need from that position? You know, I don't know. I think you can make a pretty strong case that, you know, he should be in that second unit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I see them starting Westbrook, but I, I see the oh, argument. They'll start, they'll start Paul. Though I'm convinced they'll yeah. start him. But but I, that's just who my five would be. The other thing I wanted to talk about with this, we've talked about him a little bit, but I think is is important in this is that Kawhi Leonard is a perfect Team USA international player. He's the best perimeter defender in the league right now, and he is completely fine using basically zero offensive possessions. Like He's a better Iguodala right now than Iguodala has been for a while. I mean, maybe not ever, because Iguodala was an amazing passer and things like that. But to me, he should be in the non-negotiable conversation, too. I'm with you, and... Before when they released that 34-man roster, uh, and before they kind of explained what was going on with Iguodala, I just assumed Iguodala was out. And I think I referred to Kawhi Leonard as sort of like an XL Iguodala, you know, for this team. I mean, positional versatility-wise, he can go you know, lots of different directions. You can use him in so many different lineups. I mean, one thing I threw out there in sort of like my dream team is you could put out just like the most intimidating, physically imposing five-man roster of Westbrook, Kawhi, LeBron. Uh, Anthony Davis, you could throw in Draymond just more for the intimidation factor rather than the imposing factor. I mean, who is going to score against that team? I mean, they're going to be too afraid to even get the ball past half court. And you can do these like dream five-man scenarios, you know, with Kawhi being involved with all sorts of people. I mean, you could put him out there with LeBron and KD and Anthony Davis. Uh, and now those guys don't even really have to worry about playing defense because, you know, they can kind of just you know, save up for offense. Uh, to me, I think he should be in there, but it didn't really seem like he was getting a lot of buzz for it. One, because you know, his experience just isn't there with the other guys. And two, because you know, he doesn't do interviews. And you know, the, the one thing that kind of came out about his you know, press stuff was the Sam Smith tweet, which is kind of you know, a little funny. But I think it's tricky because Kawhi doesn't really play the political game. Uh, he really has no interest in it like a lot of the other Spurs. And I think you know, there's a lot of politics behind USA basketball, and I worry that that's really going to cost them. And you know, if he played the game a little bit more, would that help his chances? It, it probably would. I would love to see him on this team uh, just because he's a player who could carry the program, too. I mean, when you look forward to 2019 uh, or the next Olympics after that, 2020, I mean, those are situations where you probably won't have LeBron and you may not have Durant. I mean, who's going to be next? And you're definitely not going to have Carmelo. I think we could agree on that. So, like, when you look at that position, I mean, that could be a little bit of a hole. Why not get in a little bit younger blood that you can really build within these next couple programs it just doesn't necessarily seem like they're going that direction. And what Kawhi brings as a non-ball dominant elite defender is something that Team USA always needs because they will have the other guys. They'll, as crazy as it sounds, they'll have the LeBrons. You know, if they exist in the world, there's a very good chance they'll be they'll they'll be there'll be one or more on the American team. I mean, heck, there are enough guys in the pipeline right now that we can say that with confidence. And so, but you need guys like Kawhi, and he seems willing to do it. I mean, he plays a plays that kind of role. I mean, he's got more responsibility with the Spurs this past year. And it would be a shame if one of the big reasons why he didn't make it is that he elected not to play last year because his team had just made the finals, you know, multiple years in a row. Hey, kind of on the same topic, you know, one guy who we haven't even mentioned his name yet is Paul George. 
Yeah, another – between the two of them, like, theoretically, if, if that were the last roster spot, what would be your decision-making process? I'd go Kawhi uh, because I think they're both better defensive players than offensive players, and I think Kawhi's a better defensive player, and that's what you need with this roster. And, and that's really why I'm pushing him and Draymond pretty hard for this team because, you know, I think that's really where the balance is, is needed given the skills of, you know, the top five core players that we talked about earlier – but Paul George has a very similar case, right? I mean, he can definitely take a step back offensively. He doesn't need to be uh, super ball dominant in the international game. He can give you much better, I think, perimeter defense than a lot of the core players on this roster. Clearly, you know, he's a program first guy, given that he came back this summer and met with Coach K and wants to be a part of the mix after what happened last year. But now you're in a really tough situation because this is another one where politics come into play, right? Like if you're Coach K and Jerry Colangelo, do you feel guilty or do you feel obligated to save a spot for Paul George if he wants it? Like if he comes and says, hey, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm 100%, I got the clearance from the Pacers, you know, I have a pretty good season, you know, in 2015-16, I want to be in. I mean, just as human beings, do you feel like an obligation or a guilt or a responsibility to include him? I could see why they might, you know? And, yeah. and again, you're not making these roster cuts with the most analytical mind, but, I mean, it's pretty tough. I mean, you watch that injury, it was horrific. You see the impact that it had on the players. People were crying after that game. They certainly remember that. They're absolutely going to want to, if possible, spin that in the most positive way they can. So if he comes back, wins the gold medal, and they can sell that story as sort of like tragedy to triumph, I mean, I could absolutely see them wanting to do that and just wanting to have just for the betterment of you know, his career wanting to be able to kind of put a bow on that which you know really potentially career altering injury that's tough you know and that's uh, once again somebody else is going to have to give if you want to do that the other thing that I thought about as you were giving that answer, and it's not going to be, I don't think it'll be Kawhi's excuse, but there's a, a much greater chance that his team will play deep into the playoffs than Paul George's team. And so that certain people could be like, oh, well, we have an easier reason to leave Kawhi off. You know, he, he, can, he can just claim that he's tired or whatever and that he declined it himself. And to avoid that, granted, he might say, hell no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fall on the sword for you guys. But... Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because, these, it, as, as we've said, these are all deserving players. I think Kawhi is better, but the Paul George personal dynamic looms over, I think, it, to a point, it looms over all of this. Totally. And, I mean, it, and it just gets even more complicated when you throw that in with the Kobe factor, too, right? Because they're kind of similar situations positionally. And so, like, if you're saving two of your 12 spots with these non-basketball reasons or they're influenced by non-basketball reasons, then a lot of people are sacrificing. So this is kind of why I'm concerned and why I'm trying to raise this issue about the Kobe thing to such a degree, because if you're not making this purely for basketball reasons, the roster's going to look different than you would, could look significantly different than a best-case scenario roster. The only other thing I'll let's say on Team USA, unless you have more to say, is I really hope we see LeBron play some point center, just for my own amusement, because we probably won't ever get to see it in the NBA. But in like against some of these smaller, you know, smaller teams internationally, you could pull it off. So do like a front line of LeBron, Durant, and Kawhi, and just just mess with people. It'd be amazing. The five main combinations that this group can put together are just obscene. Like, you know, if you really wanted to go crazy and, like, you know, Anthony Davis, like, probably could play three, right? So if you wanted to go, like, the other way, if you wanted to go super small, you could go super small and put out five guards who could run anybody off the court. If you wanted to go, like, ultra big, you've got LeBron at the point guard, 
Uh, you know, you could even have like KD as one of your wings. You could just go crazy long, have Davis as a three, you know, shooting three pointers from the, from the international line and, and putting in multiple bigs just to scare teams. I mean, you could do almost anything you want to do. And I, this is one point that I was making during the, the week and, and when I was writing. You know, there's a legitimate argument that the, the B team, you know, players 13 through 24 for USA could win a medal and maybe even the silver medal uh, at the Rio Olympics. Because we've already mentioned on the players who might have to get left off. I mean, if you're building your B team around guys like Kyrie, Paul George, Kevin Love, and then down the list from there, and now you have room for a Kawhi and a Draymond Green if they don't make the A team. I mean, I think that team stacks up pretty favorably against just about everybody that's out there. And especially when you look at some of the other international teams, I mean, I don't really feel like a lot of these teams necessarily have really reloaded. You know, Tony Parker slipping. You go down the list of like the biggest name, you know, future Hall of Famer guys, Dirk slipping, I think Powell slipping. And you just go right down that list. And who are these next generation, like A-list international players? I mean, I'm not sure that that pipeline is quite as good as it was maybe you know, five to eight years ago, just, you know, entering this 2016 Olympics. I mean, what do you think? I mean, could USA a, you know, could USA play itself basically for the gold medal in Rio? I think, I think they definitely could. Spain is still awfully good if they're healthy. I think that they would be the, the other real competitor. I mean, there are teams that have potential. I think there are a lot of international squads that'll be substantially better in 2020 then they'll be in 2016. The other dynamic when you're talking about them facing each other for the gold medal is, would Draymond Green let anyone else guard LeBron James? <laughs> well, and, and would you rather see that than whatever we're going to actually see in Rio? I think mean, that's another question, too. It's like, I mean, I would all, it's almost going back to those like mythical dream team practices, you know, Monte Carlo everybody talks about. But like, if they actually had a camp next summer, and it was like, look, nobody has a guaranteed spot. Everyone has to go earn a spot because we've got so much talent right now. I mean, that would be the must-see TV. I mean, we got a little taste of it last summer where it was just like one-on-one on one between Kevin Durant, you know, James Harden, and Paul George. And that was just like ridiculously entertaining to watch. I mean, they were really, uh, you know, working up a sweat, going after each other uh, and breaking out moves that clearly they've been working on in the summer, kind of anticipation of, of the World Cup. I mean, to be able to see that in a five-on-five setting where everyone's going 100% uh, trying to – you know, earn a roster spot would be unbelievable, but we're not going to get that because of, uh, you know, Coach K and Jerry Colangelo's decision to kind of limit the time and imposition uh, on some of these bigger star players. So to me, that's a little bit unfortunate. Uh, I get where they're coming from, though, because you know, he did mention it's 35-day commitment next summer if you want to play on the Olympic team from when they start, you know, their festivities in Las Vegas and they do that little international tour and then they go to Rio through the end of the Olympics. 35 days is a pretty long time for anybody, let alone you know, some of these guys who are, you know, on their way to being potentially billionaires and they've got a lot going on with their, uh, you know, off-court lives. That's a lot of time to be committing. And frankly, it's kind of amazing that they do make that commitment when you think about, you know, what, what else they could be doing with their time. But, you know, still it's a little bit frustrating that we don't get to see some of those, you know, LeBron versus Draymond or Anthony Davis versus the Marcus Cousins or, or James Harden versus Russell Westbrook or whatever other positional uh, matchups so we could be seeing in that scenario uh, it's just too bad or even like you know Draymond versus Blake Griffin there's another one you know a little bad blood there I'm sure Steph versus Chris Paul I mean we'll write down the list of all these potential matchups we could be seeing that we're not seeing I, I get frustrated every once in a while you alluded to it as a basketball you know ner- history nerd that what is widely agreed is the best basketball that has ever been played there is no video of it or there's no publicly available video of it it's infuriating to me 
Yeah, you know, and especially when it comes to, like, you know, Jordan stands, and I kind of consider myself a Michael Jordan stan a little bit, but, like, how was there not, like, super high quality, whatever the best video camera available at the time, not just following him around all day, every day? You know, it's like, how did they not foresee that he was going to have this legacy that just, like, lasted decades and decades where people would want to know every little bit of him, where, like, now he's older than 50 and, like, video of him beating Jimmy Butler in a knockout competition at a summer basketball camp can get, like, millions of views and be, like, one of the lead stories, you know, more than 10 years after he retires. I mean, how do people not foresee he was going to have that kind of an impact and therefore, like, capture every little moment of his career, including something like that, uh, so that we could be affected by basketball fans? I don't quite get it because so much of the marketing around here is so intelligent and so much of, you know, NBA films and what they've done with, you know, some of the on-court stuff, it's so great. I mean, you can go back and watch so much of Michael Jordan's career or any of the guys from the early 90s, late 80s. You can watch, you know, games in their entirety at this point. But how do they not have more of that all-access stuff? Maybe with his personal preference, I don't know. But it just feels like there's still a void there. And maybe that adds to the myth, too, a little bit. But I would be first in line to buy videotape of that game. And you'd probably be, you know, right there, you know, elbowing me to be first in line, too, it- I bet. Yeah, the other one, the other one that would be there is the the game after they lost, the dream team lost to the college guys in La Jolla. That footage would just be <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, probably some blood spilled. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that, no, that's the thing. Like, there are so many Jordan stories, and I mean, I'm somebody you know. I cover the Warriors. Kerr has a million of them. That you know that almost all of them are, are are true or have a degree of truth in it, but so few of those crazy ones have any documentation. And I just feel like, the, and, and especially what gets frustrating at points is that wasn't in the era where the assumption was that every piece of film, it will eventually be made public. Like now I can understand, you know, not having a crew around him because all of his endorsers would say, oh, you know, we don't want to even risk the possibility of TMZ getting a hold of some of the other stuff. Back then, they didn't worry about that sort of thing. Yeah, it was really funny to me, too. Like, last week, I don't know if you saw this, but, like, another thing that was going around on the blogs was, like, a new angle of the shot, right, where he, like, gets it over Elo. And it's, like, imagine, like, LeBron, like, let's just take, like, LeBron's shot against the Bulls. How many angles do you think that was videotaped from? You know, like, 4,000? You know, if, if you count all the fan videos plus all the official videos plus where I have every single camera, I mean, you have every possible angle. And so then you have this, like, this ELO shot, uh, which, you know, huge moment of his, one of the most enduring moments of his career. And, like, just now they're unveiling, like, you know, a third angle or a fourth angle that nobody's seen before. It's just like, <laughs> did nobody have, like, the handy cam they could sneak in in their backpack? Like, so much has changed since that era. And, yeah, it does make you kind of wonder, like, how much was lost? Like, could he have even a bigger profile than he does today uh, if he had all the advantages of, you know, 21st century technology uh, when he was young and in his prime, especially young Jordan. Like, if we're talking like 87, 88 Jordan, the guy who's like breaking PER and all the advanced metrics because uh, he was just doing everything sort of like you know, Westbrook style last year. Uh, you know, if we had real documentary stuff from that before he really hit, you know, his postseason you know, pinnacle, uh, and that could that could be unreal, but we just don't really. And it's unfortunate. The player but that I, maybe it adds the myth, like I said. Yeah, it, it does to a point. The other player that I think about that with, because uh, I I never got to see him play, 
because I'm too young and believe you are too, is Wilt. And I, when I talked to the one line I heard from an unnamed, partially because I don't remember his name, reporter years ago, I love asking people who were around then is, you know, how would players like Wilt and Russell and Kareem, how would they do in today's NBA? And the answer that they gave, which I thought was pretty enlightening, was that the average player probably wouldn't be able, wouldn't, wouldn't stay on the floor, but the best of the best would still be in the mix. And that is because for those guys, we don't even have for Kareem and especially for Wilt and, you know, Jerry West and those guys, we don't even have like a real way of putting them in any sort of context. Yeah. Well, I mean, Kareem's a more interesting one, I think to me, because it's a little more relatable, right? Like he doesn't feel quite like he's from a completely different era. I mean, clearly there's lots of differences over the last 20 years, but like, at least you can kind of picture it. Uh, and I mean, who's going to stop him? Who's guarding the skyhook in today's NBA? You know, I, I don't know. I think it just looks like you could you could throw that out. It's kind of an ageless move, right? Like, he's got it down. He's got this unreal height, this unreal length. And he's got a serious commitment and love for the game, you know, given how long his career was and how many minutes he played, how much he won, how many individual awards he won, how he won at every single level. I don't know how that doesn't translate. You know, I don't think the game's gotten so much faster that he wouldn't be able to keep up, you know, especially in his younger age. He's a very athletic, you know, clean of foot guy. Um, so to me, it's like if Kareem translates and then the guy he was facing sort of the shadows of during his career was Will. So if, if Kareem can translate, I think that suggests to me that Will would be able to translate pretty well too. Um, but I think there are probably more Will like physical specimens in the modern NBA, given all the advantages they have in terms of performance training and everything we know about, you know, building bodies up now compared to them, I still think he would be a factor, a big time factor. And I think Kareem, if he played in today's game, would be a Hall of Famer. Oh yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I was just thinking about if they tried to put Anthony Davis, oh granted, Anthony Davis is not the best interior defender right now, but if you try to put him on Kareem, Kareem turns him, turns him into a puddle. That's just what happens. Like, I mean, Davis... Oh, for sure. And no question. Yeah, and, and I mean, you think about, I think the best, probably the best individual to defend him right now would either be Dwight, if a healthy Dwight, or Rudy Gobert, just because Gobert is close in length. But those guys, there just isn't a parallel in today's NBA. Yeah, it's a different game, and, you know, it's, I mean, I think he'd be able to establish his peak to his spot against either one of those guys. You know, I mean, I think it's tough when you're that tall to kind of get the leverage, but, I mean, he, he had every trick in the book. Uh, fundamental player, played with lots of different guys over the course of his career, different styles. I just think he proved that he had, you know, he could translate basically, you know, any five on five game you want to put on any court, he was going to be able to do it. And I think that holds up to today. And I think probably historically, like, Kareem's probably the most maybe underrated guy among the, the biggest names. Uh, I think the media has a role in that. I mean, it didn't seem like he was very loved or, or, uh, you know, I didn't have a ton of close relationships with media members, which definitely will shape your legacy. I mean, clearly, you know, intellectual-wise, or intellect-wise, like, he's in a different plane than a lot of these other guys, uh, you know, a lot of the other superstar players, and his interests go way beyond basketball, which sometimes is hard for people to, you know, relate to because they want the, you know, the singular-minded, uh, you know, Jordan or the, or the Kobe Bryant. Uh, where basketball is to the be-all, end-all, and maybe it wasn't for Kareem because he had you know, all these other interests and still does. I mean, just look at his writing career, how many different things he's written about. So I think maybe that, that leads people to underrate him when it comes to, like, the greatest of all time discussions. But I think he has to be right there, and 
And I think it's going to be a strong argument for him even 20 years from now, 40 years from now, or 50 years from now, is that like he would still be a Hall of Fame caliber performer wherever the NBA game goes. I just don't see any evolution of the NBA game that's ever going to make Kareem Abdul-Jabbar all this. Agreed. Uh, I have two theories for why Kareem doesn't get his due. One is the one you said that the person is hard to connect to. And and that works in a lot of different degrees. It's the basketball component. It's the him as a, I, I've 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 met him before. I I'm a huge Kareem fan. The second part is something that he has that's very unusual. And we're going to get into this a little bit with Tim Duncan eventually, which is a vast majority of the guys who are really high in counting stats. I think about somebody like a Carl Malone, are generally players who didn't have as high of a peak, but they just played a long time. What people forget about with Kareem is that his peak was just as high as anyone else's. It was just so long before he retired, and he played at such a high level for such a long time that people lost sight of it. You know, when Kareem came into the league, he was an MVP candidate his rookie year. You know, like, that's how good he was. And he was, and that was, you know, that was a good league, and it wasn't, you know, a down year or anything like that. And a lot of times when you think of those counters, or if you want to make the comparison, Derek Jeter in baseball, they're more guys that hung around, or Craig Biggio, but he was one of the best of the best, and he just kept on doing it. I was going to say, like, his peak was basically a mountain range, right? <laughs> he just was like, peak, 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 peak. He just kind of kept going like a panorama photo. But yeah, I think that people do, I think, especially younger fans, the people who, like, I grew up, when I was a kid in like the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, the cream that we first think of is Magic Sidekick, right? And that is not the peak. And that's the point you're making is that that's 10 years past where he really was as a player. And his numbers, I mean, his numbers still stack up uh, compared to anybody at his position. Uh, the Duncan comparison is interesting. I mean, where do you have Duncan all the time? I, I have him in sort of like the 5 to 7 range, which might be a little bit higher than some people. But, you know, every year we have to rank our top 100 players, and every year I'm insisting that he has to be, you know, right in the thick of it with all these guys who are 10, 15 years younger than him because per minute-wise he's still incredibly productive. You know, any advanced stat, you know, on-off measurements, everything says he's a huge help to his team. And they win a lot, and they continue to win a lot. And that's just, you know, absurd, you know, given that he never really had that magic presence, you know. Uh, he didn't have anyone – at least not yet. Maybe it's Kawhi uh, coming along here, but he never had the guy to kind of really boost him up. I mean, he had some help, but I still look at him until really this past season, maybe halfway through the season, as being the driving force of this first. He was the number one guy. He's always been the alpha guy for them, not counting the early, early Robinson years. I mean, that's a little bit more of a conversation, but I don't know. I mean, where do you put him? Like <clears throat> five to ten? All time. Yeah, five to ten. To, uh, five to ten is a good a good thing. The distinction I make with him and Kobe fans are going to jump all over me, and I I welcome it. Bring it on. Is Tim Duncan was the best player over the whole season on every single one of his title teams. That is a very important distinction. So for me, when I when I think about best players of all time, my focus is substantially more on peak than total volume. I think that's a more important measurement because that's when you're talking about best. If you want to talk about best career, I think Duncan's probably higher on the best career list than he is on the peak list, which is no knock. He's high on both lists. But why? I think he's probably in the, my thought is firsthand, I hadn't thought about this till now, it's probably in the 7 to 10 range, is that I, I never thought of him as that truly unstoppable player. He's great, 
but he never to me like, he t- I, to me he's clearly below the guys like LeBron and Michael Jordan where your best and the best of their era and arguably of any era couldn't stop him. Like I think they would have a lot of trouble. I think he would do really well, but he wouldn't drop like 35 on them. He would his team might win and he would be a very important part of that. And that's the same same issue for me when with Bill Russell, which is that he's an unbelievable player. His import his impact on the league is insane and his team might win, but when you're talking about best individual players, I knock those guys down a little bit. I mean, Duncan still He's still probably, I mean, if you want to count him as a power forward, which I think is a little bit of a cop-out, he's probably the best power forward of all time. He is the best power forward of all time. But the more fun question is where he ranks among the centers. And I would have him below Kareem. I would have him below Wilt. And then it gets complicated. Yeah, I think you can make a case that he should be basically fourth behind Russell, too. Yeah, I, I think the, the, I think those yeah. two have very comparable careers, and I and it's 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 so hard. Like the Duncan Russell one, which is a comparison that isn't made enough, is is also tough because the era makes a big difference with the two of them. Because Duncan in Russell's era would have been like a physical freak, and Russell in Duncan's era would have been that. But to a point, that's not fair. I mean, Russell beasted on the people he played against. Yeah, for sure. Well, here's an interesting name. Like, we haven't even mentioned Shaq. So if you go Duncan or Shaq, I go Duncan. Who do you think? I take Duncan. Shaq's peak, I think, was a little higher, but Duncan's peak was a lot longer, and then his non-peak was so much longer. Yeah, totally. I, mean, I think we're going to look back in 20 years at Duncan, and it's, just, it's going to be really unfathomable because of all the different eras he was able to maintain I mean, all the other different stars, basically, that came in and out while he was still just maintaining, you know, 50-plus win seasons and deep playoff runs year after year after year. I mean, you go back, like, there's Shaq, there's the Iverson, you know, you got all these guys, McGrady, Kobe, uh, you know, Pau Gasol, I mean, Kevin Garnett. I mean, all these guys within his era of dominion, you know, there, there's multiple generations. I mean, you're getting the end of Jordan, uh, you know, the Wizards era Jordan when he's already, you know, playing pretty near peak basketball, uh, Duncan, and now you're potentially, he's going to potentially outlast Kobe and then, you know, go forward in beating LeBron multiple times in the finals during LeBron's prime. Uh, it's pretty absurd. You've got Dwight Wade in this, this era of sort of you know, elite Hall of Fame players. It's crazy. Uh, well, and, and, the, so and they I beat a fully he's, formed he's, super he's team. Probably, like, there are very few yeah, teams exactly. that did that. Totally. And so I think he's going to age very well. You know, I think we're going to look back probably with even more respect on Duncan five years after he retires and then even more 10 years after he retires. And I think actually the Russell comparison you made earlier is a really good one because he could eventually get to that sort of mythic status where if you look 50 years from now, like what do people think about Tim Duncan? It could be like, you know, maybe he wasn't, you know, the, the highest peak player. Like maybe Shaq at his best was better than Duncan at his best, but few players have, you know, nobody else really had the longevity that he did and the longevity of winning that he did and the culture creation that he did. Uh, and I think he could get into that, like, mythic, you know, Mount Rushmore style of, of conversation along with, you know, Bill Russell and, and maybe even, you know, Kareem, too. Like, those two guys, I think he could wind up being there, maybe at the expense of a Will Chamberlain. And the other dynamic with the Spurs is I think that time will be less kind to the other players on their team. Maybe Kawhi will be the exception, but Kawhi's peak is going to be after Duncan's career, unless Duncan plays till he's 50, which I wouldn't undersell. But Parker was a great player. Manu was a great player. But they weren't, like, I don't think, would you, neither one of them got 
particularly close to even like let's say Kobe at his peak. Like you think about supporting players, they were very good. He had arguably the best coach of all time, especially the best coach of the of the real modern era in terms of tacticians and Popovich. So there are benefits there, but it's not like he was playing with the he's playing with Hall of Famers, but he's not playing with like if you want to talk about Bill Simmons' idea, like the tier one or tier two Hall of Famers. Yeah, so we actually had this debate, uh, Rob Mahoney and I did, when we were doing our top 100 rankings, and we're trying to figure out, like, what is the order when you're ranking just for this coming year of, like, Tim Duncan versus, well, Marcus Aldridge versus Kawhi, right? And one of the points that we raised, like, Tim Duncan versus Marcus Aldridge is, like, who wanted to play with who, right? Like, who left a situation to go play with the other guy because the other guy had such a long tradition of winning? You know, so, like, even if Aldridge is younger, even if he's, you know, potentially entering his absolute prime season, even if he's more productive in a volume basis because he can play more minutes, uh, you know, even if uh, he's a more polished offensive player, even if he's putting up bigger rebounding numbers. At some point, like Duncan Lur ranked higher than all those individual things for Aldridge to kind of continue, right? Like being the man in his own situation in Portland or wherever else he could have picked in free agency wasn't as enticing as riding shotgun to Duncan and getting to play with Duncan and, you know, potentially having a chance to win with Duncan. And so I think when you look at the factors of, like, what brought him to San Antonio, I mean, of course the money was excellent. Of course they're ready to win now and the team dynamic is all there. But, like, the Duncan factor absolutely should not be uh, underrated. And yeah. so, you know, to me, that's just one more way to, like, explain, you know, Tim Duncan's you know, greatness and, and, and put him into context. It's like he's pulling guys who, you know, Aldridge, like, if things go really well, like, have a shot at the whole thing, maybe, you know, if, like, the, the rest of his career, like, goes according to planning, wins multiple titles and, and so forth. Uh, but he's, and, and no question about it, Duncan will, his presence will make Aldridge better, and it will make him look better in San Antonio than it did in Portland, uh, just like he has done for all those other players that you mentioned. Yeah, I, I, I'm a, I like LaMarcus. I love him a little bit less than some, but I think he's, in terms of, Impact on the team's success, he's probably the third best player on the Spurs this year. And that's insane. Like He's an unquestioned all-star. And and that's why I'm so excited. I I think people have lost a little bit of sight of how amazing the top tier of teams are going to be this year. I mean, so you have you have the Warriors, who are a really a really good team, built around an MVP, built around a you know a, a likely Hall of Famer. The Cavs are in incredible collection of talent. I mean, I think you can make an argument that the Cavs, in terms of pure talent, if LeBron is if LeBron is close to what he was, let's say, two years ago, not prime LeBron, but two years ago, I think you can make an argument that this Cavs collection of talent is better in terms of basketball than any of the Miami any of the Miami Heat teams. I think it's a, I think it's totally defensible. I mean, it all comes down to the big X factors that people have been mentioning since they kind of got put together, which is you know, love health and Kyrie health. You know, I mean, you got to have those guys. And, you know, that really came, you know, those chickens came home to roost at the worst possible time for them during the postseason. But, you know, I look at, like, the top tier, you know, teams, I think you can make strong cases that four of the top five teams in the NBA being Cleveland, Oklahoma City, uh, San Antonio, and the Clippers all got markedly better. And I think, you know, Golden State at worst, you know, I'd say – you know, they didn't necessarily get better, but I think they're, you know, kind of in a similar situation. Maybe they're getting better by the internal improvement of their younger players. You know, their, their core is still kind of on the upswing when you're looking at, you know, Draymond and Clay and Steph. 
So, you know, arguably they got better this summer. They certainly didn't lose any major pieces. So you're looking at a situation where we had a pretty good finals last year, I thought. But now we're in a situation where we're coming into a season where the top five teams in the NBA all got better than they were last year. I mean, that's setting up a really exciting 2015-2016 season. Uh, and what you're saying about Cleveland in the East, you know, potentially being better than those Miami teams. I mean, at, at their peak, those Miami teams crushed the East and, you know, the, the record-winning streak and, and so on and so forth. I mean, Cleveland, if they stay healthy and if they get off to a better start this year without Deion Waiters and without some of these other complicating factors, I, mean, I think we could be seeing a similar level of, you know, intra-conference dominance that we saw from the Miami team in, like, 2012-2013. Agreed. And a, a point that with the Warriors is people, they I, I would argue that they didn't get better. They also got really fortunate with injuries last year. But of the teams that you mentioned, and there is the exception of the Hawks, but the Hawks are going to be worse, they won 11 more games than every other team in the league other than the Hawks. Like, they could get <laughs> They got the room to come down. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like they could get worse, they could do worse and still be in that conversation. And what I also like about the, that group is that almost all of the, the best teams, however you wanted, wherever you wanted to find it, they're strong on top end talent and they're deep. And so what that means is they're good regular season teams and they're good playoff teams. And, you know, so, so you're not going to have one of those situations where you have a team that is that once you condense the rotation, they're going to be a little bit more flawed. I think about a team like the Hawks in terms of that, just because they didn't they didn't have everything together, that when they face it, but the Warriors and the Spurs and the Cavs and the Clippers, like all those teams, you can make an argument that they'll be better once you condense it and when they play against high-level competition. Totally. I mean, I remember a time during last season where there was just kind of that light bulb switch, uh, you know, that light bulb moment. I want to say maybe it was like in early March, uh, or maybe mid-March, and it was just sort of like, okay, there isn't going to be anybody who's going to beat these Warriors. Like they just—they've got every angle covered. They can play big. They can play small. They can play fast. They can beat slow teams. They've got the guys who are going to take the shots. You know, late in the playoff games. You know, the hypothetical. You know, alpha uh, guys. You know, the Kobe Bryant role from previous years. They've got the unselfish players. They've got you know elite defense. They've got elite offense. Like when you're trying to pick holes in them. The only hole to pick was, like, are they going to be able to stand up to the pressure? And, you know, that was even kind of a reach, you know, when we were writing it, like, well, they're going to have to do it. We have to see it. But, you know, still, and they've got a lot of guys who are pretty level-headed and aren't head cases, so they should be able to handle it, and they did. And, I mean, all those things are coming back. I mean, to be able to bring all those things back, you know, I think that they should be uh, entering the season, you know, hyping up the possibilities of their repeat. You know, if I was them, I wouldn't be – holding back whatsoever in terms of you know, what's the goal for next season because you didn't lose a core piece. Uh, you don't have any obvious injury concerns heading into the season. You've got the ability to keep the minutes off of your players who do have injury concerns. You don't have the pressure of gunning for 67 wins. I mean, they don't need to try to go out there and top that. You know what I mean? They're, if they win 60 games next year, that's still definitely going to be a successful season. No question. Any team would take that. And so I think they're in a position where you know they can kind of you know, bide their time a little bit into the playoffs, make sure that the key guys are healthy, you know, especially I think Bogut's, you know, probably one of the biggest question marks. And then then you start to play the matchup game. I mean, who do you see as their biggest threat in the West? I think it's San Antonio, but Oklahoma City is getting a lot of buzz in the USA camp. I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of respect for, you know, them getting back into the picture immediately, not needing kind of a ramp up. Uh, and then I think the Clippers, too, some people are, are looking at as being significantly improved. I mean, Who's your number two team? 
I think the Spurs have by far the best chance of beating the Warriors in a seven-game playoff series, and the reason why is they're the only team in that mix that has two elite perimeter defenders, and that's Danny Green and Kawhi, so you can take away a lot of what the Warriors do really well. The other team, if they have everybody and they have their druthers that could do it, is Cleveland, but Cleveland's obviously not in the West. Um, but so what the Spurs can do is they can take away what the Warriors do best without sacrificing a whole lot everywhere else. And under Mark Jackson, we didn't see it a lot because the Warriors just didn't really face these teams. Their biggest weakness defensively was teams that move the ball really well because they're a very aggressive helping team, which is great, and they can do it. They have so much athleticism and so much versatility. But they can get beat by a really good passing team. If you, if you remember, there was that really great Hawks-Warriors game during the regular season, and it was, it was an anomaly for a couple reasons. But those types of teams, the Spurs also whooped the Warriors at Oracle last year in a very, and it was early in the year. So people don't really remember about it because the Warriors weren't real contenders then. Like they weren't, people weren't thinking about it, but they just worked them. And it was one of the, it was the only time at Oracle the whole season that I can remember covering that team where I went, wow, they really like legitimately got outplayed. So I think, I think that's there. I've, the way I've described the Warriors the last, the, the last little bit is they're really insanely good, but they're what I call super team vulnerable. And the problem for OKC is they have the top-end talent of a super team, but they don't have the right supporting pieces. And it's I've been very critical of whoever is involved in it, whether it's Presti or whether it's ownership or whatever. The way that they chose to add the complementary pieces, they decided on exactly the wrong characteristics. What you want with those guys next to, next to Durant, Westbrook, and Ibaka is you want a big man who can just who can gobble who doesn't need a lot of possessions but can just be another stopper so that you have basically so you can allow a bucket to freelance and then for the two spot you ideally you want somebody who can defend versatile so you can don't have to have durant expend as much energy and who hits open shots and they have exactly zero of either of those guys and that's a problem because canner can be exposed waiters can be exposed moro can be exposed adams can be exposed and so like and these teams OKC in a weaker era would win titles, but the problem is they're in an era where there are a lot of teams that are better than them. Yeah, I think they're going to need some help if they're going to do it. I think the biggest X factor to me in the entire Western Conference is Tony Parker because their whole rhythm offensively, everything they're trying to do is going to begin with him, and I didn't think he was even close to being who he was during the title run for the, the previous final run, and he was even kind of banged up during those runs. But last year, I thought he was just a shell of himself. His numbers really took hits everywhere. Down the stretch, it seemed like he, you know, in the second half of the season, it seemed like he couldn't make a mid-range shot. And they rely on him. They need that offense. And so I think you could have, like, this incredible, like, front-line lineup of Kawhi, Aldridge, Duncan, which I think is, you know, pretty easily the best 3-4-5 in the NBA. And you could have those guys maybe not get to their potential if – you can't at least get Parker to like, you know, 80 or 90% during the playoffs. And he's had a really hard time staying healthy. And he continues to do these little knickknack things during the postseason where they were able to kind of skate by against the Thunder that one year because the Thunder were banged up uh, in the conference finals. But now you don't have Corey Joseph. You know, he kind of is the one piece that got poached from them. Uh, and so now it's sort of like a Patty Mills situation. You know, I would be a little nervous going against the Warriors without a healthy Tony Parker in a seven-game series especially because you also have, like, the compounding factor of Manu's, you know, I think Manu probably should have retired just based on how he played last year during the playoffs. 
wasn't the same guy. I understand why he wants to come around for one more year, especially with you know the big offseason they had. So <clears throat> I'm not like bagging on him for for coming back, but the slippage you're seeing from both of those players is potentially the big weak spot here for San Antonio, which in past has been one of their you know top you know their, their top spots. And especially when you're going against a Curry in that matchup or, you know, whoever else you want to put the point guard position. I mean, you're not really able to hide Parker. He's going to be able to get uh, exposed one way or the other defensively. So he's got to do something offensively, and he just really hasn't been doing it last year. It's a great point, and I think that the the way that I've phrased that issue is that they don't have anybody to create the first crack. They have an amazing group to to once there's once there's a little bit of a gap to expose it and blow it apart. But they don't really they they have a limitation with that first with that first initiation. That's that's what a guy like Westbrook is amazing at, you know. And Curry now with the attention that defenses pay to him. If Parker isn't that guy, if he doesn't create that attention, then that hurts everybody else. The other the possibilities for me who could take that mantle and one of them is totally out of left field, is that one is Patty Mills, of course, but the other one to go really unconventional is Kyle Anderson. And what you do there is basically just force other teams to mess to mess themselves up because they're going to be sitting there and they're going to be going, okay, if you theoretically run Green, Anderson, Kawhi, you know, because Green is actually better to me guarding ones than twos. If you do that, you're it's not necessarily a great lineup. But what you're forcing other coaches to do is go like, oh, crap, who are we going to put on who? And they'll mess that up enough that it might work. Yeah, and I think he's going to be in line for more minutes this year. I liked his summer league a lot. I had him as my summer league MVP. Uh, he's just one of those guys that's really fun to watch. I guess I worry a little bit about, okay, how ready is he, given you know his rookie year play was sort of not great, and he was probably the their weakest link in the rotation last season. But They've got to do something. I mean, you know, losing Joseph, I think, is probably one of the, like, least talked about moves of the offseason in terms of what it does to, like, a real contender because you figure he gets lost in the shuffle of, like, Danny Green coming back on a big discount. Uh, you get Kawhi re-signed, so everything gets taken care of business there. You get Duncan back. You get Ginobili back, so the superstars are in place. Like, you bring in an Aldridge, so you've got this new all-star. And then, you know, Corey Joseph, who I think would have been my choice if, Tony's slipping again next season. I mean, that's really who I would have preferred to play over Patty. It just, I have a little more trust in him. I think he's a little more solid, you know, less risky. Uh, maybe he's not doing as quite as much, you know, offensively, you know, as dynamic as Mills, but, you know, he's a fairly competent floor general and he's going to give you some energy and, and effort, uh, and, you know, discipline. With him out of that picture, you know, that does change things for San Antonio. Now they have to start going to these alternative plans like you're mentioning and like, it's not a bad backup plan, but like if that was something that I regularly had to go to, especially in a seventy-game series against one of these other top Western Conference teams, whether it's you know, and all of them have amazing point guards, whether it's Oklahoma City, the Clippers, uh, or Golden State. I mean, that kind of cross-match thing or or unconventional lineups would worry me. You know, it would be something that would keep me up at night. Yeah, that's 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 definitely a good point. I'm a little bit more of a supporter of Patty Mills just because I think the offensive part is more important for them. But you're you're right. I mean, it's it's a really amazing dynamic that that could matter as much as it is. Uh, one other thing I wanted to just because we're both you know both basketball nerds is I'm so excited for the Alvin Gentry Pelicans. I, I think they're gonna they're probably gonna be my early early times well not earliest time slot but early time slot league pass team the whole year. Yeah, so why did they pay Omar Ashik? <laughs> That's the big question that I have. It's like, Alvin Gentry just got done basically matching uh, 
a sheet off the court during the first round, right? Like, and I, I think we all saw that coming because it's like there was no way he was really going to be able to play in that series, you know, once it kind of started to unfold. Like, once they went smaller, what they kind of exposed him as basically a defense-only guy. Like, you just weren't going to be able to keep him on the court for big minutes. It didn't help that he didn't really seem locked in at all. And so then now, two months later, you turn around and you're giving this guy this five-year, whatever, $60 million contract or four years, whatever is actually guaranteed of it, to basically be a weird fit in the same coaching system. Like, to me, my ideal vision of Gentry's Pelicans is Anthony Davis is more or less your full-time center. Uh, Maybe you've got, like, a physical power forward that you can kind of play alongside him to, like, relieve some of that physical burden at times. And then you are just making use, absolute use of his incredible versatility and athleticism to get up and down the court as often as possible. You turn all those guards loose, you know, Tyreek, Gordon, Holiday, you all have green lights, push the tempo as much as possible, get to the basket as often as possible, uh, and let's just go nuts and, and let's, you know, play that pace style that, you know, Gentry's so famous for. And instead now you've got this, this weird fit where like, okay, you've paid him all this money, so theoretically you're going to start him. But now Anthony is now playing four instead of five more. Maybe you can you know, kind of shift that so he gets some more you know time at the center maybe in uh, later in the games. It just seems like a really weird fit. And so I don't totally understand why they did that. I mean, maybe they felt like, okay, you sign him now and you can trade him later. But to me, I just wonder, how is it going to work with that? I mean, that's my biggest question for the Falcons going into next season. Is like, how does Ashik fit into Gentry's vision? Because everything that we know about you know his, his past history – and, you know, especially this real pinnacle of that Warrior season is that a guy like Ashik, because he doesn't have Bogut's playmaking ability, he's a weird fit. And it doesn't quite work. And especially when you're looking at, like, where you best utilize Anthony Davis. And at USA Basketball Camp, I mean, Davis looks bigger, more developed than ever. He just continues to get uh, more and more center life just in his physical presence. Uh, the game continues to shrink down around him. I mean, everything seems like it's headed towards him being a center, and now you've got a sheet with all this money thrown into the mix. It just doesn't make sense. There, I, I'm not necessarily giving them the benefit of the doubt that this is why they did it, but there is a big picture thing here that I will want to see teams embrace more, and Ashik is a perfect fit, which is the idea of having your team be constructed differently for the regular season in the playoffs. And the example I'll use here is the Golden State Warriors. So even if you plan on using Draymond Green as the center primarily in the playoffs. You still want Andrew Bogut on this team because giving Draymond that responsibility for 82 games plus the playoffs is too much. So what you can do with Omer is you give you give a buffer so that Davis doesn't have to put those miles on himself during the regular season and you do, but you don't you're not committed in the sense that he has to play as many minutes in the playoffs. The difference between those two teams is that the Warriors had better pieces to lose Bogut, to shed him, and still be good. The Pelicans don't have those guys yet. They should be able to get them eventually. But I think that's the best way to do it, is that you give him... So you're going to be a substantially less fun team for those stretches, but you keep your key pieces a little bit healthier. You use Ashik as more of an enforcer, not an enforcer in that sense, but as as the kind of like a buoy on a boat. 
So, you know, so Davis can take that pounding. He can do it. You know, he can play 40-something minutes in the playoffs, but there's no reason to do it in the regular season. The only reason you would do that is if you need your best five out there every second of every game, in which case, yeah, that's an issue. And, I mean, the Pelicans are a lot closer to that margin than the Warriors were. But the logic is, and I want to see teams do it, is that, is that you structure your team differently to do so that you have somebody who's basically taking that beating, and then when you get to the big bosses, you don't need them at all. Yeah, I, I like the concept. I think the the difference between the two teams I see is like Davis is the foundational piece there, right? Like everything should be built around him in New Orleans, whereas in Golden State, like you're not building around that front line necessarily. You know, you're building around Curry. And would you ask like similar, like, hey, we're going to switch this up for you halfway through the season or once the playoffs start, as we get close to the playoffs? Uh, you know, does, does that require some give from your, from your, you know, and just an adjustment period for your foundational guy that might not be necessary, you know? I, I do think there's also, like, we are treating David still with kid gloves here because he's had so many little uh, injuries, concussions, their shoulders, just one thing after another. And so I think they're, I think they probably feel uh, a little paranoid about keeping him for steam because obviously he's worth so much of the franchise and, like, his long-term health is so important. I think the Ashik plan makes more sense maybe in years one and two of the contract from that standpoint. But like when Davis hits 25, like he's just going to be physically where he needs to be to, to do anything, you know, to play center as many minutes as you want. I think he's going to be able to handle it. And so then I look at the rest of that deal. It's sort of like, okay, now he's really, you know, dead weight and not a good fit. And maybe at that point you're able to trade him because the cap's gone up so much and other teams are looking for him. That, you know, that's a reasonable place for a back and center. And maybe they get to that point. But I don't think it, like, totally locks the Sheik in as, you know, a, a horrible, like, toxic asset or anything. But I, I guess this whole conversation of a Sheik really is just my way of keeping my expectations a little bit in check for the Gentry Pelicans because I do have so much hope going from a guy like Monty to a guy like Gentry that they are going to be a significantly more fun team to watch, a significantly better team. And I think that that is just sort of a sticking point for me. It's like, okay, well, it's not going to just be a totally smooth transition. We're not going to see this team you know, necessarily win 15 games more right off the bat. Uh, they do still have some of these positional issues they've got to work out. Yeah, that's a great point. They also have depth issues. You know, that's something that we saw in the playoffs. They're a team that has talent, but when they're missing guys, they don't really have it. Their second unit is still real rough. I mean, that's the downside of trading all your first-round picks for specious assets. But they, but at the same time, to me, that doesn't affect the entertaining factor as much as, you know, coaching style and all that. But it is a great point with, with Omer. I, I just don't think it's going to be as big of an issue. Also, when you think about for the 48 minutes of a game and – the Warriors staff deserves a ton of credit. I have no idea who gets what part of it for playing different combinations of players. So I think we'll see plenty of Davis without Ashik on the floor. And so I'm not as worried about that. It might not open games. It might not close games, but we'll see it. So yeah, I, I'm excited about that. And I'm also, the other one like that that I'm really intrigued by is, will Randy Whitman do what he did in the playoffs in the regular season, or will he just do the same thing in the regular season again? Well, so this is the big question. Like, are we willing to give Randy Whitman the credit for being smart enough to hide the Paul Pierce thing from us all regular season long and then just stumble upon it in the playoffs? Like, did he, was that really his plan? Or do we think he just accidentally, you know, found it? Based on, like, multiple years of, like, pretty uninteresting, un, unimpressive offenses throughout his career, I, like, more lean towards the latter. Like, he just realized, like, look, Paul Pierce is – you know, 
by far after John Wall, like the most ready for, you know, postseason moment. So he's got to be out there. So now something has to give and boom, he just kind of like figured it out. I mean, will he build off that? I don't know. It's interesting. Like there was a lot of spin going around that team, you know, because they, they had the nice postseason run. Maybe they beat expectations a little bit. They looked so much better uh, when they went to that smaller look. Uh, then maybe they had it at other points offensively, and they'd always seemed like an underperforming offense given sort of the talent that they had. So is he really willing to learn from that, or is he going to revert to the tendencies that he's had throughout the rest of his coaching career? I don't know. Uh, that is an open question to me. One guy I think that I'm looking forward just from that Washington team taking a big step forward next year is Beal. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I picked him this week as sort of like, you know, a real strong, most improved player candidate. You know, I think last season, you know, the injuries, you start, you know, anytime you're starting the season off with injuries, that's not great. Uh, his numbers actually took a step back in year three scoring wise, uh, which is unusual for a player, you know, who's that high up in the lottery pick who comes in with sort of that seal of like, you know, blue chip potential. And he's looked really good in, in each of the last two playoffs. I mean, maybe not ideal, uh, but he seems, you know, ready, you know, to, you know, ready for prime time, so to speak, you know, early in his career. And then on top of that, I think everybody can agree there's a lot of fat in his shooting diet, you know? Like, there's a lot of room for if somebody gets serious with him about his shot selection, and he also, you know, kind of takes a, a more Jimmy Butler approach of, like, hey, I'm going to really attack my defenders hard because it's a contract year if he doesn't get the extension, uh, and because he's looking at max money next summer, I think we could see a real spike in his, uh, not only his scoring, but, you know, his efficiency as well. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe the rest of the lineup questions around you know, that backcourt aren't as important because if you've got John Wall creating more points than basically any other point guard in the postseason, especially, uh, you know, percentage-wise of their offense, and then you, you're coupling that with a more efficient deal, and that could be a really good team in the Eastern Conference, and maybe some of the other questions aren't quite as important. That could be. I'm a little bit skeptical that he's going to come grow as much as a secondary ball handler as I want him to. You know, that is something that can be improved. We saw it with Clay Thompson. We've seen it with a lot of guys. Jimmy Butler is a great guy to bring up. But I think that's more of his ceiling than his present. And But he has the talent. And when you one great point you brought up with John Wall is he creates so many points by his assists that you're asking for a lot less as a secondary creator than a lot of other teams. I guess what I'm hoping for from Beal is that the contract year pressure or the contract year expectations are like the payoff of like, you know, potentially like, look, if I, if I take a more assertive role, uh, if I pick and choose my spots to attack defenders, if I do a much better job of getting to the free throw line and, you know, his baseline for free throw attempts is not very impressive right now. So that's not asking a ton from him. And if you, and if you kind of play off wall, so wall is the initial, you know, defense, you know, breakdown guy, it comes back to you. And now rather than settling, and dinking around on the perimeter and taking that 20-foot long two that you know you shouldn't be taking, if you really get more aggressive going to the basket, I think it's asking a lot, but I don't necessarily think it's asking way too much of him, uh, you know, given uh, his all-around offensive game. And that can make a big difference. I mean, just making that minor adjustment. Like, you know, I go back to Butler because he's last year's most improved player, but, like, that was, I thought, the fundamental difference of his game is that he was just in attack mode from the very beginning of the season, and he was willing to live with, you know, if he didn't get the calls, so be it. He was willing to live with the idea that he needed to put more pressure on the defense, especially when Rose was out. And I think Beal really needs to get that through his head. He needs to put more pressure on a defense because he's bailing defenses out constantly with his long twos. And even some of his threes, which are, you know, not horrible shots. I mean, he's taking contested threes. He's a very good shooter. He can hit those shots. 
I just hope he's got someone who's giving him that message of, look, well, you need to be a little bit more aggressive here. You need to push your game that direction uh, if you're going to get to that all-star level, which totally seemed like it was possible when he was coming out in the draft. Uh, and still actually, to me, seems possible. Like I don't think it's out of the question that he can get there in the short term uh, if he does a little bit more, but he's got to push himself a little bit like some of these other wings that you're talking about. Yeah, the, in a way, you could phrase it, and this is how kind of the Warriors did it, is that you can get better shots than what you're satisfied with. And, you know, a, a contested three for Bradley Beal is a good shot, but they can get a great shot or an amazing shot. And it could even be for Beal himself, you know, that you can get that. And I, I don't have as much faith that, Randy Whitman's going to do that is that Steve Kerr did it, especially because Steve Kerr already did it. But it's possible. And there is also a massive power vacuum below the Cavs in the East just because there we it's a lot of uncertainty. And whoever figures it out fastest is going to have a, a pretty notable advantage, especially if we think that it's more on the lines of four deep than five or six because that second that number two team is going to get a much easier early round opponent yeah it's really tricky in the east to like who is the guy that you is the most bankably excellent player that's not on the Cavaliers right like because there's so many guys who have the injuries like who is that who's the best player basically the most reliable player besides LeBron and, and maybe even Kyrie and like you go down the list I mean, John Wall's got to be in the mix for that. Like, if I had to just trust any of the guys in the Eastern Conference that aren't on the cast, who's going to really be able to carry their team to an important, you know, to a nice playoff run, to a nice record, uh, and is going to cause problems for players at his position? Uh, I think Wall's like right there. I mean, I, I'm not sure totally who else it would be. I mean, clearly Atlanta takes a different approach; uh, yeah. it's more collective. But we've seen with that group, like Horford goes down they're totally different. You know, I mean, they're not even going to be in the mix. And so, uh, I mean, Wall is kind of ascending in my mind to that thing, to that, uh, to that level where he really has to be accounted for. And, you know, you can almost bank, like if he gives you, you know, 75 games, like that's going to be a top four team. I mean, I, I kind of have put, put him in my mind uh, at that level where even this time last year, I wasn't willing to do that. And certainly at no point, you know, previously in his career, but you look at all the other teams that are sort of in that second tier, the Bulls, I don't know, maybe people put the Raptors in there, the Hawks. I, I don't feel as sure or as confident in any of their central players as I do with John Wall. Yeah, I, I would have that group as Wall, Horford, Paul George, and um, and Jimmy Butler. But Paul George doesn't have the surrounding talent, so he, he can't elevate his team to the same degree because there just isn't as much to elevate. And Butler, we still need to see it again. I mean, but they have a ton of surrounding talent. I mean, I think that the Bulls are going to be so much more watchable this year. Miritich is actually going to play and play with guys who make sense with him. But you're right that that is a huge advantage for Washington. They also, other than Paul Pierce, have pretty intense continuity, which helps for an early stretch of a season, you know, because I think that's going to be a big defining thing for this for the non-Cavs Eastern Conference is, you know, who gets out to a stretch because they're all pretty balanced, and so if you can bank a three- or four-game lead early, that's going to help a lot. Yeah, it's weird because I can see the regular season standings going a lot of different ways in terms of, like, who wins the most games in the East outside of the Cavs. But I think I still come back to Chicago as being the one team that can actually really challenge them in a series. Uh, I was at every game of that uh, Eastern Conference semi-series, and before it completely exploded – I mean, that was a really tight series, and you could feel the nerves around LeBron in a way 
that I hadn't really seen him in the Eastern Conference since going back to the that Celtics Eastern Conference Finals that went seven games. It was it wasn't totally in his control. I mean, so often when I watch him at these, these playoff games and just how he conducts himself after the game, he kind of feels like a puppet master. Like he knows he, he's better than his competition. Like he's going to be. He believes in himself enough where he's going to be able to beat them basically no matter what. Clearly, that's not how it's been in the finals recently against the Spurs uh, when he was so frustrated, and then against the Warriors where you know he did whatever he could. But I think there was a, a sense even. You know, with himself, that like at some point it wasn't going to be enough, right? But in the Eastern Conference, it's always been like, hey, he feels like he can just exert his will over the competition. And at times during that Bulls series, it did seem like it was slipping a little bit. They just didn't have enough to close it off. I mean, if he doesn't make that shot to beat them, or if David Black gets that timeout called, I could see them losing right there. And so to me, that's a pretty close series that in hindsight doesn't look as close just because of the way it ended uh, in such kind of ugly fashion for Chicago. So to me, if I'm penciling in the Eastern Conference Finals, as much respect as I just gave to John Wall and as much respect as I have for the Hawks, I think not only do I expect, but I kind of hope that we get Bulls tabs again. Yeah, we're, we're in firm agreement. I think that the Bulls present the best series, the toughest series for Cleveland right now, regardless of regular season record. And I, I think that's a larger point with the NBA this year. And I mean, I can make the argument for top 16 and all that, but... I think that home court is going to matter a little bit less at the top rounds because these teams are so good that they can win on the other team's floor without any trouble. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think this is going to be, I mean, we kind of always say, like, predictable at this point, and then something crazy happens in October and the entire thing gets turned upside down. But, you know, if, if any team besides, like, Chicago, Cleveland, and the four that we mentioned in the West crashes, crashes the conference finals, I would be surprised. I guess the the one team that we should probably give some respect to is Houston because they have already, they've already done it, and I think that they had a you know fairly nice pickup there with Ty Lawson. Yeah, but if better. anyone besides, that, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can make that argument for sure. You know, anybody besides that group, though, I think it would be very shocking to see that happen, just because of where all those teams were last year and then how they did this offseason relative to their team last year. And so, you know, to your point about the home court advantage, like I expect all those teams to have home court advantage and to protect it uh, for the most part. And then once you're getting down to the conference finals, I think you're going to have some really, really good series, uh, hopefully better than this year's conference finals, which were, you know, atrocious on the East and kind of, you know, interesting and lots of storylines, but ultimately not super competitive in the West. Yeah, and the, and the West almost ended up destructive if either of the injuries, the Curry and Thompson injuries, had lingered into the finals because that obviously would have totally changed the dynamics. Well, so do we do we snuff Houston? I guess how do you feel about the Rockets in terms of like we? I mentioned the four teams that I thought were kind of the best in the West. I mean, Houston fans are probably ticked off that they weren't, you know, immediately put after Golden State. Do you put them in that top five category, or top four, or, or what tier are they? I think I, I think they're I, I have the so are we talking regular season or playoffs or both? I guess both. Okay, so for the regular season I think they're a little bit below like the Warriors, but they're maybe but I think they're in the mix with everyone else. I mean that isn't to say the Warriors could fall back in, it's just it's less likely just because they already did it. But in terms of the playoffs, I think they're a little bit of an easier cover and they what they do well is more easily preventable. But I think the same is true of the Clippers. You know, I, I think I think that they're in I think you can't really separate them from the Clippers if they're both healthy for those exact reasons. And the Thunder 
are in a similar group. They just have higher variability. So the Thunder are have this kind of, if you want to think about it as like expected value, their expected value is pretty similar, but they're going to have some crazy highs and some lower lows. And so I think that, I think those five though are the, those are the conversation. And that makes me feel terrible for Memphis because Memphis is good. They've had an amazing run and they, and they're a team that can be dangerous for a lot of these teams just because they have so much defensive talent and they have their identity. But I think it's, it's a five squad real mix there for the conference finals and everything that goes along with that. So here's my question. Would you start Ty Lawson or would you start uh, Beverly and knowing that, you know, one of them's, you know, you're playing along harder. I think that their best five involves Lawson. So that means that I think they should finish games with him and probably start them with him. But I think outside of those times, Beverly should play primarily because his value is almost entirely that he can play off the ball and defend once. You know, he's not great at running an offense. And other than James Harden, the only other guy who can run their offense reliably is Ty Lawson now. They just got him. That's awesome they got him. But that's their, that's their you know, identity. So I think the one of the, so the core, it's kind of a, I, I guess you could do it in kind of, a, kind of a coding idea. So how I would say is this. You want to start and finish games with Lawson and Harden, but you also want a design priority to be that whenever Harden isn't on the floor, Lawson is. So it's kind of a hedge, but at the same point, I think that's where the true answer is as well. Yeah, my, my priority would be to close with both of them. And then I would really seriously consider having Lawson as just like completely turned loose, high-octane second-unit guy. Because I think that was pretty, I mean, he puts up insane numbers in Denver when they were playing that way. And I think he's like, would be so overqualified as a, you know, second unit, you know, six man type player. Like I could easily see him winning six man of the year if they just like, you know, if they gave him starters minutes, but they didn't like technically start him. Like I could, I could see him, you know, really succeeding in that role, flourishing in that role and really just like helping to set the tone for the style of play that they really like to play, you know, and, I mean, you know, if Harden's going to have the ball, you know, is lost. I mean, I would definitely want to separate their minutes, you know, to some degree. I agree that they should both be on the court at the end of the game. So I would, I would be kind of in the camp that would say start the season starting Beverly because he's kind of the known quantity. You know how he plays with Harden. Let Harden, you know, get comfortable early in games, doing his thing, whatever. Then have Lawson as the crazy change of pace guy, instant offense, just like totally turn loose, almost like Isaiah Thomas style. The younger Isaiah Thomas, not the Detroit Pistons Isaiah Thomas, uh, as your second unit, and then close with both of them and, and have your you know maximum playmaking options to close the game. That might be the way that I would go. It'll be interesting to see what they do, though. Uh, I guess some of it's going to be determined by what shape does Lawson show up to camp in, you know, mentally and and uh, and health wise and everything like that. But you know, I kind of like I kind of like that Beverly. Harden pairing, and we didn't really get to see it because of injuries, you know, down the stretch. And to dovetail in with something we talked about at the very beginning, a lot of this will come down to the emotion, the human part of it. You know, is Ty Lawson okay with coming off the bench? Is he okay with, with, with the? Is he okay playing with James Harden? You know, is he is is he willing to accept that if he starts, he's not going to be the main guy in terms of the ball in his hands? And so. The fortunate thing for teams is they get to they have time to figure that out. You know they don't have to make that decision, and any decision they make in August, in October is not final. So I think that they will play around with it, 
And what's great is you have 48 minutes and you're, you get you get a chance to do all of that. I like your idea with Lawson, you know, Lawson playing that role coming off. And you can even kind of do that a different way and have him as an early sub. So I, I've always loved the idea of an energy sub with about six minutes to go in the first quarter because that's when guys start getting a little bit tired. And at the beginning of the second half especially too, it's like, oh yeah, I'm getting a little bit tired. And then you have this one guy who's just a thunderbolt then as opposed to with like three or four minutes left in the quarter because they I think they can swing things and Lawson is tailor-made for that role. I think that one other thing about Lawson that we probably should be mentioning just in terms of like his mentality and his mindset coming into this season is like he really is just being liberated from a pretty awful situation in Denver. I mean that thing blew up so fast so hard he was stuck trying you know to get through what was a pretty pointless existence for these last two years. I mean, everybody knew they were going uh, nowhere. It didn't seem like their front office totally had its bearings in terms of what direction they were trying to go. They didn't make the kind of logical moves you would expect for a team that takes huge step back, you know, to make in terms of like, you know, really dumping talent, getting off salary. Uh, until it almost seemed like it was a little bit too late. And the coaching situation was a total train wreck. And so to me, if I'm Ty Lawson, like the questions of like, can I do with James Harden? Do I care about if I'm starting or whatever are less important than I am so glad I'm out of Denver. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm kind of bullish on, you know, his season because simply for the fact that he's getting out of a, you know, he's basically going from a situation that was going nowhere fast, total dead end franchise at that point of time with him to a, a team that has significant upside. Uh, in the Western Conference, uh, and it's got a lot of positive momentum, and it's got really smart people in terms of how do we make the most of our players, how do we cover up for their limitations. I mean, from the front office, uh, Daryl Morey on down, that seems to be a real priority for them. And I think they've gotten a lot of you know, role players to really you know, outperform expectations uh, in recent years. And so, to me, that's all reasons to think that Ty Lawson's going to have a, a really good time with Houston. Of course, it comes down to can he keep his stuff together, uh, and that remains to be seen, and that's a huge X factor. But he has every reason to succeed, I think, in this new environment. Yeah, I, I think that's a great. And we, we lose track a little bit of Denver because they were so far out of the mix after that playoff run that they had against the Warriors. You know, that was a team that was incredibly relevant and then became irrelevant, and we forget how hard that can be on players. You know that that it, making that change is real is really tough, especially when you think you're in your prime. Well, exactly, and especially when you don't believe in the coach's ability. You know, and that's a huge part of it too. It's like if you're in a situation where you know it's going to be tough. I mean, you know you're not going to be winning 50 plus games and going to the playoffs like you were uh, previously. You understand that the talent there, there is no A-list talent, so it has to be this like collective. You know. 10, 10 men pulling together, overachieving, and it's going to have to be this very delicate, you know, masterful coaching job. And then your coach goes in there, and, you know, by all accounts, you know, he's rapping in the locker room, and he's trying to do all these things to get through to these guys. And, you know, their effort is very questionable right from jump, you know, the, the first season that Shaw was there. If you don't have the faith in your coach, and then your front office just lets him dangle for, you know, a year and a half, when the results are, you know, there's lots of smoke around there, there's unimpressive results, that's a really easy way for guys to check out and check out hard. And players should be responsible when they do check out. I mean, clearly you should try to make the most of every situation that you're in. But it's also a little bit more understandable, given those conditions, 
that guys would be not 100% completely bought in. I mean, you could just see how that would be able to foster, right? But now you're going to a situation where there is no leeway for that. I mean, now you're going to a team that expects to, you know, compete for a title, a team that's coming off a very strong season, a team with multiple superstars in place who theoretically are going to be, you know, the top of the pecking order kind of laying down the line for everybody else. And so now you've really got to be, you know, 100% ready to go. And to me, just the way the whole, uh, you know, trade played out and the way they've handled the aftermath, it seems like they're really trying to put him in a uh, position to succeed. Uh, and it, it seems like they've got the buy from him a little bit more than maybe he had in Denver, where it just seemed, you know, very chaotic and dysfunctional. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. Uh, is, is there any other thing you want to discuss? We've been, we've been going at it a while now. I mean, I guess not too much. I mean, what do you think of this year's rookie class? I guess that's one question I have, you know, I, in terms of, you know, who do you see, you know, getting, you know, how do you see the, the main guys being used? Who do you see being standouts to your early rookie of the year pick? I think that the, oh, they're not, they're going to disappoint early, but that's okay. I think that you're going to see, you're not going to see a ton of those guys really get the, the chance to shine. Uh, the guy that I think is going to win Rookie of the Year is Julio Okafor because you think back, I always give Kevin Pelton credit because he's the one who brought it to my consciousness that basically the guy who leads in combined points, rebounds, and assists almost always wins it. I think that's going to be him. They play fast. He's going to get a lot of touches because who else do they have offensively? But why I I, I have a piece that's going up on, on B-Ball Breakdown in a little bit about Mario Hazonia and why I'm excited about him as a league pass guy is I think it's going to be, for a lot of this class, it's going to be about flashes. And it's going to be about, you get these glimpses of, wow, this player is going to be really good down the line. That's what Carl Anthony Towns, I think, is going to be a lot of this year. Because Minnesota has such a stacked front court rotation that you'll be seeing these moments of, wow, this guy's so talented. Because I like this class a lot. I think this is a very good group of guys. But... There, uh, some of them went into situations where they're not going to get a chance, and some of them went into situations where they're going to struggle. But that's fine. I mean, that's what rookies are supposed to do in the NBA. That's that's what this process is. So, Oak Four Rookie of the Year flashes from almost everybody. The guy I'm most interested in beyond Towns is Russell because he's the guy who I have the most uncertainty about. And Summer League only amplified that. Like I worry about him getting separation, but his passing ability is awesome. Well, I mean, could he be going into a worse roster fake construction than what the Lakers have going on? It's like, how much more would you rather be Moutier, where they just give you the car keys and it's like, look, dude, you can play as many minutes as you want. You're going to make as many mistakes as you want compared to the Lakers, where you're going to be under pressure from day one because everybody talks about the Lakers. You've got to satisfy Lou Williams, Kobe Bryant, and uh, all these other guys, Nick Young, all these guys who want to shoot constantly. You're big, who you're hoping to, like, you know, thread the needle with your amazing passes is Roy Hibbert, who's going to fumble more than NFL running backs. You've got Julius Randle, who's un, you know kind of unimpressive summer league. How does he really fit? You're going to have to keep him happy at some point because he's a young guy. He's going to want touches. Uh, and then you've got Clarkson, who's basically just trying to keep the point guard spot because that means he gets to have the ball and he can have a huge contract next summer. That, to me, seems like shark-infested waters. You know, and that is all around. And you've got a coach in Byron Scott who, you know, I think in terms of how is what are his priorities I mean, it seems like the glorification of Kobe Bryant was his number one priority last year, and then everything else took second fiddle. And that's not great if you're a rookie point guard because you want some, you know, room to, you know, learn on the fly and grow, uh, and you want a loose leash. Uh, is he going to have that when there are other more experienced options there for minutes? I mean, I think, you know, ultimately, like Russell could be struggling to even 
you know, get the kind of minutes that you would we would deem like as sort of the minimum for a player in his situation. Like I think he's going to be not marginalized, but I just worry he's not going to be high enough on their priority order for a player who was taken with the number two pick where he should be. And so, so it's this frustrating purgatory in LA with with the Lakers just kind of waiting on Bryant to retire. And, and you also have so, really nasty incentives with that team in terms of Russell's development because they also don't have their own pick probably this year, and it's Kobe's <laughs> last year, so they're going to be pushing for wins. And as much as Russell has potential, rookie guys running an offense don't have a good track record of producing wins. I mean, it does it does happen from time to time, but usually that's a struggle. So if they're trying to win as many games as they can, whether we think because they're also trying to you know, make free agents think, oh, we're not horrendous, you know, we're, you should come here. They, they're going after all these goals and developing this guy that they just took high in the draft is not as high on the list as you would think considering where they took him. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm really worried about how that plays out. I think I'm interested in where he's going to be three years from now. I'm really worried where he's going to be for the next year. Uh, and just go to Minnesota real quick. So I, I'm worried I'm going to want to have it both ways with Minnesota because last year it was sort of like, look, you're running Wiggins into the ground and chasing the year work down the stretch. Like, I realize there's lots of injuries, but, like, you're probably playing him too much, asking him to do too much. Like, this might not be the best mile to put on his body at that point of his career when you're already headed for, you know, eventually the number one pick and a terrible record. I mean, you don't need to be doing that. But now I wonder if I'm going to be complaining about the opposite thing next year, which is why isn't Towns playing more? Why isn't he getting more touches? You know, why is he, you know, getting a chance to be more of a featured guy? And I think that, you know, they're all talking playoffs. You know, like Ricky Rubio uh, in an interview to me and a couple other guys, just Saunders and KG. I mean, the message from them is they want to win. And so does that also, again, especially early in the season, come at the expense of pounds? I mean, do they give up halfway through because they know they can't do it and start to play him more? You know, we would hope that that's how it would go. Uh, but I think Towns is, you know, a very, very, very interesting player who I would like to see getting substantial minutes from day one. Um, whether you have to like pair him with the center so he doesn't take, you know, a lot of the beating, you know, you play more at four. I mean, that'd be one way, you know, we could go about doing that. But I, I mean, I want to see as much Towns as I could possibly see next year. But I don't have to worry about if, if that's going to mean wins or losses, and I guess yeah. they do. My completely selfish dream for Minnesota is that they run basically two teams. One is all the entertaining guys I want to watch, so Towns, Wiggins, Rubio. I actually think uh, Garnett makes sense as the other big in that because he can you know, take some of that beating and bring the mentor, and then you use Bielitsa for other parts of that minute. And then you put all you put Pekovic and, and Andre Miller, and you put kind of a purgatory lineup. Sadly, Shabazz Muhammad might be pushed into that lineup. You know, he can be either place. <laughs> but, but so you do that. So that also the reason that I think Flip Saunders should consider that is – that is the a lineup built more around that I concept is gives you the ability to evaluate him for the future. And I think that's what you need to do for this year. Their primary goal should be evaluation because they're going to get another good asset in, in the draft, presumably, and they need to know what they need. Do they need a go-to scorer? Do they need a... Do they do they want a, more of a five to play with Towns? I think Towns is eventually going to be a center, so then you're looking more for a power forward, ideally probably a stretch forward. But so you, what you do is you figure out with the guys you have, a are they a part of our core, and b what is their role as a part of that core if they're in it, 
And I, as as much as the fun team, boring team idea is selfish, it also serves those purposes pretty well. Totally. Yeah, to, to put a clarifying note on it, not only do I want to see Towns play as many minutes as possible, but the way you said it is good. He needs to play as many minutes as possible with Wiggins and Rubio. I mean, that seems like that's their most bankable core. And if it doesn't work with Rubio, like, and I, I'm not totally sure. I, mean, I, I like him as a player. I don't love him as a player. But, like, if he's not able to really get those other two guys going, Wiggins and Towns, they're not able to, like, really start to generate some positive rapport and chemistry and so forth, then you got to that, – that raises even more fundamental questions going forward. So I think that you need to really test those guys out next season for as much as you can. Yeah, and, and that's a very important part that a lot of a lot of fans, GMs, and everybody alike has trouble with is uh, when you're a team that is still on the way, if you identify something that doesn't work, it's better to cut it early than late. Oh, and especially for a guy like Rubio where, like, I mean, he's had tons of bad luck, so he's got every excuse in the book. He's fan-friendly. People love his style of play. Like, everybody wants to root for Ricky Rubio to succeed, right? And I include myself in that, everybody. I would love to see him, like, put some of these injuries behind him, really take his game to the next level, maybe get his three-point shot just a little bit more dependable so he's not such a giant, um, you know, li- uh, limiting factor there. Uh, and, you know, become the player who came in so high, to, you know, get closer to that reality uh, as opposed to one of these, you know, kind of fading stars, uh, that it kind of seems like he is at right now where, you know, he's not quite landing where everybody thought he would when he was taking the lottery and so much anticipation built up over the couple of those years. Um, but look, it might not work. We don't always get what we want. And if it doesn't, like you're saying, you know, it's, it's time to figure out what that next plan is uh, more quickly than later. And also this could be their last chance, assuming they want a young point guard and Tyus Jones is not that guy. And, you know, it'll take more time to evaluate. This 2016 draft would be their time to strike on that player. For sure. Yeah. And, and again, like if you're, if you're drafting a point guard next year, now your young core is all, what, under 22? You know, so your point guard, your, your primary wing, and then ultimately your center of the future is all under 22. I mean, that could be an unreal team eventually, especially if they're growing together and they're, uh, getting a lot of that chemistry, you could you could potentially lock them all in, uh, you know, with the the rookie you know the rookie extension. So you're potentially looking at a team that you can keep together for seven years. Uh, you know that trio uh, that could actually be a Timberwolves team that has a lot of hope, uh, but it would require even more patience than everybody's put out for the last ten years with that team. So I can understand why if you're in Flip Saunders' mind, you're probably not thinking that way. You're probably thinking like, let's try really really hard to get to 500 and see what happens this year. And that's a little bit dispiriting from an outsider's perspective. You want to know something really crazy? Both Towns and Wiggins will start next season 21 or younger. Next season, not <laughs> this amazing. season, 2016. <laughs> so, I mean, you could, you could, you, you, like, you're getting with those guys, with the current contract structure, you're getting them for their whole, basically their whole 20s. It's ridiculous. Not even the Timberwolves can screw up Towns and Wiggins. I'm feeling pretty confident about saying that. Well, you're 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 jinxing it. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I you, I'm somebody who was so on board with the Kevin Love Ricky Rubio thing, and I never I never said that public what you just said publicly, and won't say it now. But I, I'm I'm very optimistic. But the big for me, the big question with Wiggins is, what is he? Is he? Is he a an offense? He obviously is going to be a good defender. He has all the pieces to do that, but. 
offensively, is he more of like, you know, a Jimmy Butler where he can take the he can take the mantle at points and he can do that, or is he something more than that? Because if he can be something more than that, then you start talking about, you know, like, can he move into, like, maybe a Paul George offensive role or something greater than that even? That would be huge for this team. Yeah, so, you know, starting to see Wiggins, I think, when he was a high school sophomore, uh, when he was playing against, you know, age his age level, uh, he was such, you know, he was a much more dominant offensive player in terms of like just confidence, feel, trying to take guys one on one, trusting his body, trusting his jump shot. I mean, clearly he was the number one athletic talent of that, of that pool. So he was able to kind of do all of those things. And so when I kind of project that forward to like, what's he going to be like when he's 25, 26? And so he's in his prime and there aren't a lot of other players who are going to be with him athletically. Uh, what does he look like? I think that the Paul George, you know, what we saw from Paul George in his one, you know, productive, super productive offensive season is, is within his grasp. Uh, you know, the three pointer is going to be big. And I, I wrote at length about that last season. I mean, that's another thing with Swift. It's like, you know, he, he all of his track record says he, he doesn't really incorporate the three pointer very much. And he specifically told the team last year not to shoot a lot. They shot the fewest three pointers in the NBA. Like it's really hard to crimp an elite or a potentially elite wing player, you know, someone like, you know, this Paul George, Jimmy Butler, or even like going a little bit older, like a Carmelo Anthony type scorer, or like imagine what Durant would be if he hadn't really, really embraced the three point shot. And I don't think Wiggins really belongs in the category as pure scorers with those guys. Right. But like, you're really limiting his ceiling significantly if you're not encouraging him and pushing him out, you know, to take his game that way. And so, I think a lot of what's going to be, you know, where he is at 25 or 26 is still really to be determined by the direction he's getting from the coaching staff over these next couple of seasons about what is and isn't okay for him to do. Uh, and I think, again, you know, do, should they care about wins or not? Because if you don't care about wins, which I don't really think they should that much, then you should be encouraging him totally to experiment as much as possible, get more comfortable out there on the perimeter, do more one-on-one. Uh, I love what they did with him in the post last season. I mean, that was something I did not really see coming and which he really took too quickly uh, and which really helped him get to the free throw line a lot, which I think is going to be a big key for his game as well as sort of an alpha type score. So I'm pretty high on his overall scoring potential, but I don't think it's a certainty. You know, I think that they're really going to have to guide this because, you know, the lack of perimeter stuff potentially is, you know, a glaring weakness for him if they kind of continue to take that same tack with him. And I know Flip walked back some of those comments in like a tweet kind of, you know, recently. Uh, but to me, that just kind of seemed like lip service. It's like, you really got to get serious about it. You can't rank 30th in the NBA in three point attempts, uh, and expect to have an elite offensive player. It's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, and we're, I, I'm a little bit lower on his potential, but in the same general, but one name I'll throw out there that would be super fun for them next year is Jamal Murray. Not only do you have the Canada connection with Wiggins, but I think he's going to be quite good. So that would be. That, that would be a, an amazing little piece to add for them. And you can play both guard positions eventually. Uh, both hoops on the all-stars. Yes. Uh, so for sure, yeah, that would be really nice. And, again, that's like a mouth-watering trio that you're thinking about uh, where, you know, those guys, I think all three of them have the potential, you know, once they hit their, their mid-20s, late-20s. I mean, those are, could be perennial all-stars. And so now you're talking about that as one core growing together and in a position contractually where they're stuck there for seven years together. I mean, that could be pretty special. Okay, well, I've definitely taken up enough of your time now. Thank you so much. It was a f- pleasure having you. Danny, it's great talking about us. Always, man. Take care. 
Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time. You can read him at Sports Illustrated or SI.com, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Covers all the NBA, and something that I wanted to share that I, I he doesn't even know is that Ben's writing, particularly for Blazer's Edge, was part of what inspired me to get into sports writing. I've been a fan for a long time, and... It was the work of how he kind of connected with, with the fan base, but was able to talk about the greater NBA that was one of the real inspirations for me. I mean, there were a ton of other ones as well, but Ben has, and he's been doing it ever since. He's a, a great success story. He's does phenomenal work for Sports Illustrated and covers things, and it's fun now that we've gotten to interact directly, both in person and through the podcast. So I appreciate all of you listening. This Real GM Radio is going on strong. It is a weekly podcast, though the weekly part of it will change a little bit. There will be at least four episodes a month every month. I actually have a second episode already recorded as the time I'm recording this outro. I did the Southeast Division capsule, the first of those, with Robbie Calland and Mike Prada, which was great. It, you should definitely listen to it. It'll be out. I also did a podcast with Nate Duncan where we did for Dunked On, where we did the uh, news and our first Facebook mailbag. That was a blast as well. So hope you listen to that. Also have the NBA Utopia Project for the Sporting News, CBA Encyclopedia still going on for Real GM, and a ton of other things in the works. I mean, August is definitely the dead time, but there's still a lot of fascinating things going on and a lot of great conversations happening around the league. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any insight, good, bad, anything. I really do appreciate it. You can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com or you can hit me up on Twitter at daniellarue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It's great if you do that and or leave a review. Those are great. We really do appreciate it. And also I have a Facebook page now. It's facebook.com slash MBA. That is my page for that. It might switch to Danny LaRue NBA, just depending. I'm still figuring that out. I don't know if the rights are still up on that. I'm thinking about switching all the way over. Anyway, separate issue for a separate day. But thank you so much for listening. This was a great episode. Thanks again to Ben for coming on. Take care and make it a great day. of a drill instructor directing a musical. Town hut! Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, left, left and step ball change. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of a drill instructor directing a musical. Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands. Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? 
Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, left, left and step ball change. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers.